Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we start today, I'd like to offer you some fashion advice. Why not celebrate spring with a new stylish t-shirt from the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop? If your wardrobe is fully stocked, you might also consider a tote bag or laptop case. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal accredited to the King of the Gods. Perhaps you'd enjoy a coffee mug with the message, wake up early if you want another man's land or life. A onesie for your baby with the text, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or a decorative pillow for your couch saying, speak useful words or be silent. The options are almost endless. Links to these items and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. Now with that shameless self-promotion out of the way, let's get back to the action in Denmark. Last time, we saw how Valdemar, the only surviving king from the Danish civil war in the first half of the 12th century, managed to get the country back on its feet. Valdemar had the assistance of his childhood friend and foster brother Absalon, who was both a learned man of the cloth as well as a shrewd politician and a gifted military commander. At least according to the chronicle Gesta Donorum, that was wholly coincidentally commissioned by Absalon himself. Anyway, together Valdemar and Absalon stabilized Denmark and even expanded the country, primarily at the expense of various Slavic tribes that lived along the southern coast of the Baltic Sea in what's today northern Germany and Poland. Valdemar wanted his eldest son Knut to be his successor. Denmark was technically still a elective kingdom, but there are always ways to get your way if you're the king. So in 1170, at age 7, Knut was proclaimed co-ruler of Denmark with his father. That meant that when Valdemar died in 1182, Knut already had experience of being king, and the people were more or less used to him, so the succession from father to son was smooth. Today, we'll follow the career of King Knut VI and his younger brother. You see, Knut may have been the firstborn, but it would turn out that he was little more than a placeholder king. The real star among the sons of Valdemar would turn out to be Knut's younger brother, Valdemar. Episode 40, V for Valdemar. Even though his succession may have been smooth, Knut did run into a spot of trouble almost immediately upon taking the reins. The peasants in Scania revolted again. Just like last time, they were refusing to pay the tithe that Archbishop Absalon was yet again insisting that they should fork over. Rather niftily, the peasants chose one of King Knut's friends to be their representative and go and explain to the king why they shouldn't have to pay the tithe. Clearly, they expected the king to be sympathetic to his old friend's argument, but in the end, it didn't work. Knut refused even to listen to his case, and instead he mustered the army in preparation for an attack on Scania. Knut felt that as a new king, he needed to put these rebellious peasants in their place. Otherwise, everyone, domestically and internationally, would believe that he was some kind of doormat, and no one would respect him. 
But before King Knut had gotten his forces together, the local nobles in Scania and Halland, just to the north of Scania, mustered a small army of their own and put down the peasant rebellion without the help of the king. So when Knut eventually got around to cross the Ersen Strait at the head of the main army, the rebellion was already over. You'd think that that would be that, and that Knut would have turned back home again, grateful that his loyal nobles had put an end to the revolt so swiftly. But you'd be wrong. Maybe he felt he needed to prove himself as a forceful king or something, or maybe it was something else, but Knut decided that he needed to make sure that the people of Scania would never rebel against him again. And so he went on the offensive, attacking the peasants. I can only assume that this move must have come as something of a surprise to the locals, since they thought the rebellion had already ended. Their surprise was soon mixed with fear for their lives, since Knut and his army proceeded with both brutality and thoroughness, killing real and perceived opponents to the crown. In the end, it was none other than Absalon who had to step in and ask the king to stop the slaughter. Rather ironic, considering that the whole uprising started out as a protest against him. But there you have it. Luckily for the peasants of Scania, King Knut listened to Absalon, just like his father had done, and agreed to put an end to his punitive campaign. Knut continued to listen to Absalon's sound advice, both about not bowing to the Holy Roman Emperor and not slaughtering his own subjects, until the Archbishop died on March 21st, 1201. If Knut was worried about who would be this trusted counsellor now when the grand old man of Danish politics was gone, he didn't have to worry for long. Not because another equally skilled statesman was waiting in the wings, eager to take Absalon's place, but because Knut himself died unexpectedly not too long afterward. The king kicked the bucket in November 1202, at the relatively young age of 40. Even though King Knut had been married to the daughter of a German duke, their marriage had been childless, so he had no sons who could succeed him. Instead, his younger brother Valdemar was elected king of Denmark. Valdemar was seven years younger than his brother Knut, and he was born the same year Knut had been elevated to be their father's co-king. When their father died and Knut became king, Valdemar had been appointed the Duke of Schleswig, a position his saintly grandfather Knut Lavard had also held. But Valdemar was still just a minor when his father, King Valdemar, died, so he wasn't allowed to run the duchy by himself. So the Bishop of Schleswig, who just happened to be called Valdemar, because there weren't enough Valdemars in this story already, was appointed Regent of Schleswig until Duke Valdemar would come of age. The bishop had grown up at the court of King Valdemar I, and he and the underage duke were actually distantly related, because the bishop was the illegitimate son of King Knut V, who had been murdered at the blood feast at Roskilde. That meant that the bishop and the duke were third cousins through their common ancestor King Sven Estridsson, if you remember him. If you don't, you can refresh your memory by going back and listen to episode 26 of Viking Empire. That piece of obscure royal genealogy might not have been particularly important if it hadn't been for the fact that it caused Bishop Valdemar delusions of grandeur. If his father had survived the blood feast at Roskilde instead of King Valdemar, then he might have been king now and not just merely a lowly bishop. And in Bishop Valdemar's mind, it still wasn't too late to rectify this accident of history. So even though he pretended to look out for the young duke's interests as he ran the duchy in his name, the bishop actually sent out discreet feelers to various German noblemen to gather support for himself. His ultimate goal was to make a bid for the Danish crown, restoring his own branch of the dynasty to the throne. 
one of the German noblemen who responded, and who would become one of the bishop's closest co-conspirators, was Count Adolf of Holstein. We'll get back to him in just a moment. Eventually, Bishop Valdemar's plans were revealed, and he had to flee Denmark in order to escape arrest and a trial for treason. He went to Norway in 1192, but already the following year he returned at the head of a fleet consisting of 35 ships, paid for by his German aristocratic allies. This wasn't a fleet that was big enough to actually attack King Knut head-on and challenge him for the throne, but it was big enough to cause quite a lot of trouble as the bishop spent the following months raiding Danish coastal communities. But in the end, Bishop Valdemar amounted to nothing more than a nuisance to King Knut, and in 1193 the bishop was caught and locked up in prison. He'd spent over a decade behind bars, until he was eventually let out after Pope Innocent III convinced the king that the bishop wouldn't cause any more problems for the Danes. Even though the bishop was safely locked up, that didn't mean that the trouble he had started died down. In the year 1199, the bishop's co-conspirator, Count Adolf of Holstein, tried to start a rebellion against Duke Valdemar in Schleswig. The plan was for a coalition of German noblemen to drive the Danes out of Schleswig and eventually perhaps even to get Bishop Valdemar out of prison and up onto the Danish throne. With him as king, the German conquest of Schleswig would not be challenged. But nothing came of this plan. Duke Valdemar acted decisively and captured Count Adolf's castle at Rendsburg. Then he went on to defeat the count at the Battle of Stellau in the year 1201. Count Adolf himself was caught and thrown into prison in Denmark. He was actually locked up in a cell next to his co-conspirator, Bishop Valdemar. After a few years, as the guest of the Danes, Count Adolf managed to buy his freedom by ceding all of Schleswig north of the river Elbe to Valdemar, who by now had leveled up from Duke to King of Denmark, since his elder brother, King Knut, had died in 1202. As King, Valdemar II conducted an active foreign policy. When talking about medieval kings, that's usually code for sticking his nose into other people's wars, and Valdemar is no exception. The mighty neighbor to the south, the Holy Roman Empire, was suffering through a civil war between two pretenders to the imperial throne, one guy called Otto and another called Philip. Valdemar allied himself with Otto and sent a Danish invasion force across the border in 1203. Whatever the army's official objective may have been, in terms of supporting this or that candidate for the title of Holy Roman Emperor, in practice, the Danes captured Lübeck and Holstein and claimed these territories for Denmark. The following year, 1204, Valdemar also intervened in the war between the Birkebeiner and the Bagler in Norway. This was the time that Håkon the Crazy had been proclaimed to be king of the Birkebeiner and the Bagler asked King Valdemar of Denmark to support them. Valdemar was happy to oblige, and he went to Norway at the head of a Danish fleet made up of more than 300 ships. In June 1204, the Danish fleet arrived in the Viken region in southeastern Norway, that area that Erling Skakke had once promised the Danes in exchange for their support in the Norwegian Civil War. We covered all of this in episode 38, Birkebeiner and Bagler, so I'm not going to go over it again. In this context, suffice it to say that the civil war in Norway went on for a few more years, but thanks to the Danish support, the Bogler king in the southeast was forced to swear an oath of allegiance to the king of Denmark, so Valdemar was happy. Soon afterward, the southern front heated up again. In 1207, Bishop Valdemar, King Valdemar's third cousin who had tried to usurp the king, was elected Prince Archbishop of Bremen. The election was controversial, and the bishop's opponents had to flee the city and take refuge in Hamburg. 
the opponents of King Valdemar supported the newly elected Prince Archbishop because they counted on him becoming an ally against his native Denmark. King Valdemar also realized that it wouldn't be good for Denmark to have Bishop Valdemar in charge of Bremen, so he aided the opposition when they tried to have Pope Innocent III annul the result of the election. Bishop Valdemar initially managed to annoy the Pope, who banished him and stripped him of his title as Bishop of Schleswig, and in 1208, a counterclaimant was elected as Prince Archbishop of Bremen. The following year, King Valdemar led a Danish invasion army into the lands belonging to the ecclesiastical principality of Bremen, south of the river Elbe. The area changed hands a few times until the Holy Roman Emperor Otto IV, who liked Valdemar since he had supported him against that Philip guy who also had wanted to become emperor, convinced the Danes to withdraw north of the Elbe. The emperor also expelled Bishop Valdemar and forced the anti-claimant to resign as well. Things could have ended there, but in 1211, Bishop Valdemar returned to Bremen, backed by his brother-in-law, the Duke of Saxony, or at least by the Duke's army. Valdemar reclaimed the title of Prince Archbishop of Bremen, and this time he was actually supported by Emperor Otto because he had gotten himself into a fight with Pope Innocent about a completely unrelated matter. King Valdemar of Denmark wasn't going to accept the return of Bishop Valdemar though, so he sent another Danish army across the River Elbe. The Danes raided and pillaged in Germany for a few years until 1218, when Bishop Valdemar was finally forced out of office and had to retire to a monastery for the rest of his life. King Valdemar also supported the new Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II. The Emperor thanked him by recognizing the Danish conquest of Schleswig, Holstein and Pomerania. In other words, Denmark continued its territorial expansion and had never been this strong and rich before. But King Valdemar was just getting started. At the same time as Valdemar was celebrating his strengthened hold over the southern Baltic coastal area, he was approached by the so-called Livonian Brothers of the Sword. This was a military order of warrior monks that had been established a few years earlier with the stated goal of fighting and converting pagans in the Baltic region. Their fighting and converting hadn't been going brilliantly though, so now they turned to the victorious Valdemar, King of Denmark, to support them in their effort to spread Christianity in the eastern Baltic lands. Valdemar agreed and started to prepare his fleet. The new pope, Honorius III, even proclaimed that this campaign wouldn't just be some simple run-of-the-mill invasion, but a real crusade, with all the promises of forgiveness of sins and direct access to eternal bliss in paradise for anyone who fell while fighting. Actually, this wasn't the first Danish-led crusade against the Baltic region, because Valdemar's older brother Knut had taken a crusader army to Estonia all the way back in 1197 but Knut's campaign paled in comparison to Valdemar's. Valdemar managed to gather a fleet of 1,500 ships to transport his crusader army from Denmark to Estonia, even though many of those ships weren't actual warships, but merely commandeered civilian transport vessels. It was still quite an impressive number of ships compared to other Scandinavian naval forces at the time. Valdemar a bunch of Danish bishops and the army set out in the early summer of 1219, and they landed in Estonia on June 12th, close to a place called Lindenis. The Danes were met by a delegation of Estonian chieftains who wanted to negotiate with the Danes. 
They agreed to recognize the King of Denmark as their overlord, and as a sign of good faith, some of them even agreed to be baptized. So the Danish mission had basically succeeded without having to fight a single battle. It all seemed almost too good to be true. And as is so often the case, when things seem to be too good to be true, that's because they are. The Estonians weren't actually going to capitulate without a fight. They had only been lulling the Danes into a false sense of security while they were gathering their forces. So a few days later, on June 15th, as the Danes were celebrating mass, an Estonian force snuck up on their camp and pulled off a surprise attack from five different directions at the same time. The Danish crusaders were caught completely off guard and struggled to organize the defense of their camp. For a while, it looked like Valdemar's crusade would end with the merciless slaughter of the Danish participants. The Estonians even killed one of the participating bishops, mistaking him for the king himself. But Valdemar was lucky. Not only did he escape with his life, a force under the command of the Prince of Rügen, who were housed in a separate camp, managed to arrive in time to save the Danes by attacking the Estonians from the rear. Still, the battle was far from over. The Estonians were fighting fiercely, and the Danes were on the verge of collapse. Then, according to the legend, the Archbishop of Lund, who had also tagged along on the crusade, raised his hands towards heaven and prayed for deliverance and a Danish victory. And as long as the Archbishop held his arms aloft, the Danes were victorious. But as soon as he grew tired and lowered them, the Estonians counterattacked and the Danish line buckled. His attendants quickly grabbed the Archbishop's arms and lifted them up again, which immediately led to the Danes once again being able to go on the offensive. Obviously, this description is a legend, and it's not even an original one. Any listeners out there familiar with the Bible have probably already recognized that this is basically a copy of the battle of the Israelites against the Amalekites. Exodus chapter 17 describes how Moses would hold up his arms, and as long as he did, the Israelites, led by Joshua, were victorious, but as soon as he grew tired, the Amalekites counterattacked. In the end, Aaron and Hur had to hold up Moses' arms until the battle had been won. The Danish legend has a twist of its own, though. Because what supposedly tipped the scales decisively in favor of the Danes was when a voice was heard from heaven saying, When this banner is raised, you shall be victorious. And then a red piece of cloth with a white cross on it came drifting down from heaven. The Danes hoisted the cloth and went forward to win the battle. Ever since that day, this has been the national flag of Denmark, the Dannebrog. You can choose to believe the celestial origin story or not, but what is true is that the red flag with the white cross was used by Danish forces during this crusade and it was adopted as the national symbol of Denmark, making it the oldest design for a national flag still in use to this very day. When the Battle of Lindenis was over, it was clear that the Danes under Valdemar had won a decisive victory. The Estonian army had been crushed, Estonia came under Danish control, and anyone who wasn't willing to become a Christian voluntarily was baptized by force. King Valdemar gave orders that a castle be built at Reval, close to where the battle had taken place. The locals called this castle Tanilinna, meaning Danish castle. That later became Tallinn, which is the name of the capital of Estonia today. Or at least, that's one explanation about how Tallinn got its name. So far, Valdemar II seemed to have been unable to do anything wrong. He'd gone from triumph to triumph, and he was even called Valdemar the Victorious. So far, 
His reign had indeed been a continuation of the golden age of the Valdemars that had started with his father, Valdemar I. So far. But not everything went Valdemar's way. For instance, there was a rather embarrassing episode in 1223 when the king and his eldest son, who of course was also called Valdemar because why change a winning concept, were actually caught and kidnapped by a German nobleman called Henry the Black while on a hunting trip. Henry demanded that Denmark give up all the lands conquered in Holstein and that the Danish king become a vassal of the Holy Roman Emperor, swearing loyalty to him just like his father had done. The Danes refused and instead they declared war. As soon as the situation heated up, the German territories that Valdemar had conquered almost two decades earlier threw off the yoke of Danish occupation and declared that they would no longer suffer to be ruled by the Danes. Even though the Danish army was sent south to keep them under continued Danish control, the war ultimately ended in defeat and at Easter in 1226, King Valdemar gave up all claims to the lands and promised to pay 44,000 silver marks in order to be released from captivity. As soon as he was free again, Valdemar reneged on his promise. He even asked the Pope to confirm that his promise didn't count because he'd been forced to make it under duress and not as a part of a legitimate negotiation. The Pope actually agreed with Valdemar and gave him the green light to try and retake what he had lost. But the papal support wasn't enough though. The renewed war didn't go Valdemar's way, and in the final battle on the 22nd of July in 1227, the Danes were beaten yet again. King Valdemar was almost killed himself, and maybe that's what made him decide it was time to cut his losses and stop pushing his luck. Valdemar accepted that Holstein and the other German lands south of Schleswig would not fall under the Danish crown. But the king didn't stop hunting, and neither did his son, Valdemar. He probably should have, though, because in 1231, Valdemar Jr. was shot in a hunting accident in northern Jutland. He died later that same day from his wound. The death of his eldest son and heir was a hard blow to the elderly king. The young Valdemar, who had been elevated to the status of his father's co-king back in 1218, was the son of King Valdemar II's first and popular wife, Dagmar of Bohemia. She'd been much loved by the Danes, but unfortunately she had died young in 1212 after only seven years of marriage. Like so many other women of her time, she died giving birth. According to folk tales and ballads, she begged her husband the king to marry the virtuous daughter of a local nobleman after her death, and not the beautiful daughter of the king of Portugal. But of course, the newly widowed King Valdemar ignored his dead wife's deathbed request and went for the beautiful Portuguese princess. In fairness though, it probably wasn't because of her looks, but rather to strengthen Danish ties to Flanders, which was ruled by the new queen's brother. I probably don't have to tell you that the consequences of this marriage would be dire for Denmark. In the collective memory retained in song and myth, the new queen was beautiful but also cold and haughty and her sons would fight for the crown, endangering the kingdom they fought to rule. I probably also don't have to tell you that these ballads and myths describing poor Queen Dagmar's request were made up after the fighting among King Valdemar's sons had kicked off. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Valdemar II is still alive and securely ensconced on the Danish throne. For now. During the last years of his reign, Valdemar refrained from getting involved in any further foreign wars. Instead, he focused on domestic policies. 
one of the lasting legacies of Valdemar's time on the throne was the promulgation of legal codes of Jutland, Zealand and Scania. These new laws unified and centralized the legal proceedings in Denmark, robbing the local things of their authority to pass local laws, an authority that they had had since the inception of these things a long, long time ago. These laws, introduced by Valdemar II, were actually in use for about 350 years and were only replaced in the late 17th century. Valdemar passed away in 1241, shortly after the Code of Jutland was approved by a council of local noblemen there. Another lasting legacy of Valdemar's reign was actually his strengthening of the nobility at the expense of the rest of the population, or at least the landowning male part of the population, since they were the ones who had had any say before. Valdemar II was very generous in donating land to various noblemen on condition that they would serve him in return, mostly in a military capacity, but also in the civilian administration. This strengthening of the feudal system in Denmark, where noble vassals swear fealty to the king and serve him, further reduced the power and importance of the things. As I've mentioned before when we talked about the things, these assemblies were the place where the population, again the landowning male part of the population, could have their voice heard, and even pass laws and adjudicate trials. This was the traditional role of the things that had been in place at least since the Viking Age, if not longer. But now the power and influence increasingly passed from the things to the aristocracy, and as a part of that process, the free landowning peasant population lost many of their rights and privileges. When Valdemar II died, he was succeeded by his son Eric, who was the son of Valdemar's second wife, the unpopular Portuguese princess. By that time, Eric was already used to ruling. When Valdemar, his older half-brother, had been made co-king with their father in 1218, Eric was given the title Duke of Schleswig. And when Valdemar was killed, Eric took his place as co-king with their father. The Duchy of Schleswig passed on to his younger brother Abel. Eric's reign was to be turbulent. The peasants in Scania rose up in rebellion against King Eric. They protested against the heavy tax burden and especially against the new tax on plows, instated after some bureaucratic genius in the royal administration had figured out that a landowner's wealth could be calculated based on the number of plows he owned. This tax earned the king the nickname Eric Plowpenny. But by far the most trouble King Eric got from his brothers, especially his brother Abel, who resented that his position as Duke of Schleswig didn't bring him more autonomy than it actually did. So backed by German nobles, Abel challenged his brother the king already in the first year of his reign. The fighting between the two brothers lasted for two years, until 1244, when they agreed to a truce. It was only temporary though, and in 1246 the fighting between Eric and Abel flared up again. This time, it started when King Eric tried to regain his father's lost German territories by invading Holstein. His brother Abel happened to be married to the daughter of the Count of Holstein, and he had been the guardian of his wife's younger brothers, so he obviously didn't like Eric's invasion and did what he could to sabotage it. Abel was successful, and King Eric had to abandon his invasion and retreat across the border into Denmark proper. That can't have helped to improve the feelings of fraternal affinity in the royal family, and things would just get worse. The following year, in 1247, Abel invaded Denmark, spreading death and desolation in Jutland and Funen. In this, Abel was supported not only by Holstein, but also by the Hanseatic city of Lübeck. Even Abel and Eric's brothers, Christopher and Knut, participated. 
King Eric struck back against his brother Abel, sending an army to drive the invaders out. He was successful and even managed to take his brothers Christopher and Knut prisoner. No one knows how it would have ended if it hadn't been for their sister Sophie. She managed to negotiate an agreement between the brothers, where Abel, Christopher and Knut recognized that Eric was the legitimate king of Denmark, and they promised to stop undermining him or attacking him. In exchange, King Eric promised not to kill his brothers and release them from prison. But King Eric Plaupenny wasn't only fighting peasants and his own family. He was also embroiled in a conflict with the church over taxation. Basically, King Eric wanted to tax church land, whereas the church wanted to keep its money. The church took this very seriously. If ecclesiastical lands were taxed in Denmark, this could create a precedent for the rest of Europe, and that could cost the church a fortune. So they brought out the big guns. The Pope sent a nuncio to negotiate, and he threatened to excommunicate anyone who dared to infringe on the rights of the church, which was a rather thinly veiled threat to the king. If you want to force us to pay taxes, we'll make sure you go to hell when you die. King Eric was furious, but there wasn't much he could do, at least not against the papal nuncio, so he channeled his rage against the Bishop of Roskilde instead. The king confiscated all the property belonging to the diocese, including the newly established city of Copenhagen. The Bishop of Roskilde fled the country, and even though the Pope tried to intervene on his behalf, the king would not budge. The bishop never returned to Denmark and died in exile in France in 1249. The seized property would remain under the crown's control until Eric died. To blow off some steam, Eric Plaupenny went to Estonia to shore up the Danish positions over there. Whatever else he had achieved on this expedition, it did not seem to have calmed him down. On the way home to Denmark in 1250, King Eric decided to take a detour past Holstein to teach the uppity count a lesson and show him who was in charge. Since it was on the way, Eric stopped by his brother Abel, the Duke of Schleswig's place, in Gotthorp to spend the night. In the evening, as Eric was entertaining himself with a bit of light gambling in the company of some German knights, his brothers Chamberlain and some other men stormed into the room and seized the king. They bound him and dragged him down to a boat that they rowed out into the bay. The tied-up king's head was then chopped off and the body was unceremoniously dumped into the water. The murder of King Eric Plaupenny definitely put an end to the golden age of the Valdemars. Instead, civil war returned, just as Denmark was about to assert her position as a regional great power in the Baltic Sea region. We'll return to the details of that war in a future episode. Next time, however, we'll continue looking at crusades across the Baltic Sea and what kind of long-term consequences that would have. But we'll shift our focus slightly to the north and finally introduce Finland to our story. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history. Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I recommend that you go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. 
I look forward to hearing from you.